Okay. Sure, I'm three minutes late, but here we go. Um, we are in Mark one still. Um, we're gonna we're gonna be doing verses nine through thirteen, and then starting next week, we'll be able to pick up a little bit of speed. We're gonna close out Mark's prologue, um, and Mark front loads his gospel with so many. Um, connections to or allusions to Old Testament passages that it would just be a disservice to the rest of the book if we glossed over them. So um, that's why we're only taking five verses on today. Um, But we will, uh, beginning next week, after we finish the prologue, start with what actually is formally his gospel, the, the actual narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus uh, before we get there, though, um, let's talk about, because this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that's Mark 1, um, let's just ensure that we're all on the same page and, and discuss the question beforehand, what is the gospel anyway? Um, a word, there, there are a number of words that get thrown around so much that Eventually, we need to clarify what we're talking about because in many um, cases, we're ships passing in the night whenever we use the same word, one of them being Christian. These are words that have become so loaded with meaning from a variety of perspectives that eventually they become meaningless because none of us are talking about the same thing. And um, I believe the word gospel has over time become that. And so I want to I want to clarify when we talk about gospel when Mark describes the gospel what is he saying? So what are some um, some characteristics of the gospel? And. That is the, nearly the perfect answer. Because usually when we say, what is the gospel, it is the message of salvation available to all. We are um, salvationists, obsessed with it, um, grateful for it, rightfully so, but we've made it the point of the Bible, and it's really not the point of the Bible. Um, the gospel is... The message of Jesus. It is the story of Jesus and how he fulfills everything that was said about him and how he achieves everything that is yet to come. That is the gospel. Um, and I, and I, th- I believe we read this passage last week, but I want to just reference it quickly again before we jump into Mark. Romans 1 has a masterful summary of the gospel and I think a, uh, a summary that clarifies some things and um, remove some things from the table that don't necessarily need to be there. So this is how Paul begins his great letter to the church in Rome. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now isn't that, that's, that's a fascinating phrase, the gospel of God. It's not the gospel of um, mankind's restoration to God or reconciliation with God. It is the gospel of God. It is his gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, um, which we discussed a lot last week, that the gospel is an Old Testament idea that is clarified in the New Testament, but it is all over the place in the Old. And in fact, most of the early church, what they preached from was the Old Testament. 
Verse 3, though, concerning his son. This is an important line in Paul's summary of the gospel, that the gospel concerns Jesus, not really us. It is the good news of Jesus who fulfills the role of the Messiah. And we'll see soon who also takes the Davidic throne and who suffers. Um, Who was descended from David. There's that line back to David. According to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God. Now that's going to be an important word for us today as we look at Jesus' baptism and his temptation. That declaration of his sonship is huge for Mark and telling for how he will craft the rest of his story who was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness that's the other really important part look the declaration is going to be the resounding theme for Jesus' baptism and the the spirit of holiness is going to be the theme for the temptation and we'll see that Mark doesn't like us actually separating those stories they're one story in his mind baptism temptation our Bibles put a new heading in between that's really not the case. It is, it is the same story. Declaration and um, power in the Spirit. And then I've got to finish it. Um, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That resurrection from the dead piece is going to be important as we conclude today um, with some, to quote Anthony, powerful stuff from Ezekiel 37. Um, but this, in a nutshell, is such a wonderful summary of the gospel. And in, in many ways, it helps us read Mark better. Because after all, Mark begins his gospel by saying, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he goes on and explains the rest of his prologue. Baptism, well, the prophet John, we talked about that last week, and then Jesus' baptism, and then his temptation. And then the prologue's over and the gospel begins. So we're going to finish the last two sections, I'll argue actually one section of his prologue, the beginning of the gospel. So turn with me then to Mark 1. Um, someone, Max, you're new, so you read Mark 1, get a Bible from someone, Mark 1, 9 through 13, please, loud and proud. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descend on himself. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Okay. A couple of introductory notes to this. Um, In both accounts, the baptism and the temptation, Mark is considerably um, more abbreviated than the other two synoptics, Matthew and Luke. Notice what's missing from the temptation. There's no three different temptations. There's no Jesus responding with the sword of the lord's words you know however we want to spin that we often say like when we go to the temptation we say jesus has modeled in a very beautiful and profound way how to fight the the wiles of satan with god's words himself like that like he uses deuteronomy and just smashes this up mark doesn't really seem to care about that doesn't include it now you could say well maybe mark just abbreviated too much and he cut out some of the good bits of the story Or, perhaps Mark is crafting his story to tell a different angle. 
Or maybe he's removing some things that could, in some ways, distract us from his point. We'll see when we get there. But um, I just thought it was very fascinating that um, while in some places, particularly the account of miracles and... um, and other such things, Mark is in, is in many ways longer than the other two Gospels. In some of this stuff, he's shorter. Why does he leave out some of the juicy bits? Those are good details. Why'd you take that out? We'll see. Um, first, let's note verse 9. In those days, so this is immediately following, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Um, there's really, the, I mean, you, you can comment on uh, the fact that Jesus came from a remote place, that he came from a place that was of uh, relatively low esteem, and that he is, in terms of what's going to take place, an unexpected figure. Unexpected in terms of what's going to happen at this baptism, what's going to play out the rest of the book. Jesus, like, this is not how it's supposed to go. And yet we see that Jesus is fulfilling prophecies all along the way. But he's not like, if you're going to tell me a religious leader is going to come and transform the nation and do something incredible, well, Jerusalem, that's where he'll be from. He'll be trained under the great rabbis that he'll, he'll come with all this prestige. He'll come with a name that's respectable. He'll come with all these credentials. And nope, Jesus just showed up from Nazareth, got dunked in the Jordan. And that's how it starts. Then he says, and when he came up out of the water, immediately, this is a word that Mark loves, used barely more than 50 times in the whole New Testament. Over 40 of them are in Mark. He's obsessed with the word. Now, Mark uses it to, uh, he likes his, his book to go fast. He is, he is fast-tracking us as quickly as he can to the critical events, those of chapters 8 and 9, and then the crucifixion in 15. But I think he also uses this word to link events in ways that they, that they might not be more easily connected. So when he starts to use the word immediately, he is connecting various passages and saying, these are running together, and I want you to read them together. So he says, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, the Spirit, um, well, let's deal with the torn heavens. It doesn't say that the heavens opened. It doesn't say that light began pouring down. It says it was torn. We, we, we glaze past these things or gloss past them very quickly, but um, to, a, to a mind that is well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures, as Mark's audience, at least the leadership of the church, would have been, um, that is a very intentional wording. The heavens being torn open. So flip to Matthew or Isaiah 64. You could more or less um, study Isaiah and Mark alongside of one another, and they will um, interpret each other quite well. I think that Isaiah is the substrate that Mark's gospel is is resting on. It is it, many, many of the allusions. And of the Old Testament connections in Mark are pulled directly out of Isaiah. And Isaiah 64, this is the end of um, the book. And as you guys well know, Isaiah is a book that, that describes the, the crushing defeat of the nation and the destruction that comes as a result of their sin. And then it's this very hopeful back half. 
where God is going to restore and he's going to bring about a new exodus and the people are going to again be reconciled to God and God will again be in their presence and all this stuff's going to take place. And yet, when the book closes out, Isaiah still, like, none of this has happened. And Isaiah 64, you get a glimpse of his personalities. He turns and he begs God to set things right. I love this. Isaiah 64, starting in verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, or tear the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. I'm going to have to stop because I just want to read the rest of it. But that is... um, That is a connection that Mark's audience wouldn't have missed. Oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down. He's begging God to set things right. Remove the division between us, between heaven and earth, and come down and fix this. Crush your adversaries. Vindicate your people, Isaiah says. And then in Mark 1, the heavens are torn open and God came down and He's baptized. And the Spirit descends on him. Like it's a very strong connection. What I, what I believe Mark is trying to tell us in a very beautiful and subtle way is that the eschaton is here. The, the end is here. The messianic age has begun. If Isaiah 40 through 66 is a big book of hope, of God's soon coming servant who will set everything right and, and fix all these problems... Mark tells us it's happening now. Your agony will soon come to an end because God has torn the heavens and come down. When He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. Now, what about the Spirit descending on Him? A couple of things to note. It is very unclear in this baptism who even sees this happen. So, um, perhaps one of the reasons that the disciples and those who, would, who were present struggle with understanding who Jesus is is that they really don't see this, what I'm going to call, enthronement ceremony taking place as we are told. Mark gives us a lot of details from a bit of an omniscient narrator's perspective. We can't tell if John saw this spirit descend. We can't tell if the audience saw it. All it says is that it did. It didn't really seem to create much spectacle with anybody, or at least if it does, Mark doesn't describe it. But what about the Spirit descending on him? I think that the, we, can, we can learn a lot. Again, just keep your finger in Isaiah. That's just what we're going to do. Keep your finger in Isaiah. Isaiah 11 tells us something about the Spirit. Which is also going to feed us into... God's declaration about Jesus in just a second. Isaiah 11, I'll pick it up in verse 1. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And don't forget who Jesse is. is David's father. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and, fe- and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Uh, 
and on and on it goes. But there's something here about the spirit and this this shoot that everyone is waiting for. Which the back half of Isaiah connects to the servant, actually. This this someone from the line of Jesse, who is David's father, is going to have the spirit in some unbelievable, special, profound, perhaps even divine way. So back in Mark 1, when he came out of the water, immediately God tore the heavens and he came down, and the spirit descended on him like a dove. Um, Mark is telling us in this one little verse that the messianic age is now here and that Jesus um, who is going to take on the office of all of these the king, the messiah, the servant is going to do his ministry and his life and his work in total dependence on the spirit with all wisdom and knowledge as Isaiah 11 tells us and then if you go read the back half of Isaiah 11 it's all about the righteousness of the one who possesses the spirit you see, like all the hope if, uh, of Isaiah's gospel, and I will continue to call it that, all the hope of Isaiah's gospel is coming true in these few verses. Mark is making a very bold statement that I've probably for years just glossed on by and said, oh, Jesus got baptized, maybe I should too. That's not the point of it at all, actually. This is an enthronement, an anointing. And then he says in verse 11, And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. I'm trying to get away from saying beloved because that's really just Anthony's way of saying it. I'm trying to say beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is God's declaration. There's going to be three major declarations about Jesus made in this gospel, which are in some sense kind of waypoints along the way um, or signposts along the way. This one, um, the declaration. Well, you could add four. You could say Peter's declaration. But I'm going to talk about this one and the transfiguration where God again speaks audibly and then the centurion's declaration when he sees Jesus die on the cross. Because in all of these we learn something about the identity of Jesus. This is how Mark tells his story, crafts it with these exclamations of divinity and kingship. But he says, you're my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And this is the weaving together of three um, important passages um, actually, when I taught this last hour, I, I stumbled on another one. And so perhaps we should read that first because I, it was really clarifying. First, uh, or Second Samuel 7. Um, when we say Davidic king, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page when we understand what is um, so important about it. In 2 Samuel 7, Saul has just died and David is kind of taken the throne and he is now the king, king, only king. There was a time where there were two technically anointed kings and David was running around out in the wilderness or in Hebron or running around with the Philistines. David had a lot of running around time. But now Saul and his sons are dead except for Mephibosheth who was hanging out at David's table. But David now has the throne to himself. He... After they bring the ark back into the city, and he dances like a madman, and they have it in a little temp, uh, temporary covering, he says, you know what, I, should, I have a really nice palace. I should build God a temple. Like, this will be great. This is what I want to do. And God says, no, 
Um, you can't do that. He says, for one, you have killed too many men. You have way too much blood on your hands. And you could say, well, didn't God ask him to be that kind of warrior? And I, Yes, God can ask you to do something and then say, because of what you've done, you can't do something else. He writes the rules. Don't complain about it. He said, you, you're, you're a man of war. You can't do this. I'm going to let your son do it. And then he says, and I have some other concerns. You, um, you think you can build something that's going to impress me. It, it doesn't really play it out in the text, but I, I sense some um, arrogance in David's devotion that God has a bit of a problem with. And that's because if you look in 2 Samuel 7, um, verse 4, God comes to the prophet Nathan, who is the, the mouthpiece of God to David, and says, I want you to go to David and say this. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Again, for the sarcastic people in the room, there is hope because the Lord himself is very sarcastic. So, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. That's why I think that God believes uh, that there's a little tone of arrogance running in here. He's, he's telling David, remember who you are. You're a shepherd. I made you king. Don't forget how this works. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. When they say David has slain his tens of thousands, don't forget it was me who did it, not you, David. He's putting David in his place a little bit. And I will make for you a great name. He says, you can't build me a house. Tell you what, I'll build you one. I'm not going to let you do this, but I will do something for you. I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. This is David, you are impressive but don't forget that I am much more so. Just think about uh, Barclay and his gift language as to the gifts were commonly given and who was worthy of giving the gift and receiving the gift. Mm -hmm. They had all of these thoughts about gifts and uh, it's fascinating God's reminding them that his gift would be a little bit greater. Yeah. In the ancient world, gift giving is not... Like the idea that I can give you a gift and you owe me nothing in return is very modern, a couple hundred years old. Like I I can give Kyle a Christmas present and like we just call it good like oh thank you Ryan you're really generous that's unbelievably modern the ancient world Kyle is now in my debt and if he has the means to do so he better give me a better gift that's how the ancient economy worked that's how you formed alliances that's how the social um, stability was maintained through favors and God is saying don't forget what I've given you don't forget who's the bigger man here don't forget who has all the power in this relationship. By the way, you still owe me something. This is, this is kind of the story of the Bible. You, you owe me your allegiance. 
That, that, that's going to be a, a strong idea throughout Mark. But he is, he is calling David to recall all the favors I've done for you, buddy. Then he says, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. <laughs> God, can I make you a house? No. I'll make you one. I'll make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come um, from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Immediately, that would have been Solomon. But we'll see that this has far-reaching implications. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. There is a connection back to Mark 1. I shall be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Don't forget that Mark says, you are my beloved son. This is the, this is the Davidic covenant right here. That there will always be a man or a king from the line of David on the throne. Now, it's important to remember from the perspective of an Israelite, that wasn't always the case. Solomon was the last true Davidic king in terms of a united monarchy. Um, Rehoboam, his successor, technically was a Davidic king, I suppose. But really, Israel goes for hundreds of years without a, a king from the line of David on the throne. And don't forget they were subjugated to Assyria, Babylon, Ptolemy, Seleucids, and then Rome. They were, they had no power. And so the question is, for your average Israelite, what happened to your promise? We were always supposed to have a king on the throne. He's always supposed to be from the line of David. Flip to Psalm 2. This is especially... Um, appropriate um, in light of um, the recent inauguration. Psalm 2 is the is one of the main features of the inauguration ceremony, um, I guess you could say, for Israel. When you anoint a new king, what happens? A prophet, spokesman of God, comes in and actually anoints the king, declares him the king. And then when the new king takes the throne, there's celebration and feasting and festival. And Psalm 2 is read. Now I'm going to start in um, verse 7 just for the sake of time. But listen to this and think. uh, There's two ways to read this. There's the reading this as um, the enthronement psalm or anointing psalm of the original Israelite kings. And then there's reading this knowing who Jesus is. Sec, uh, Psalms two, Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree, the psalmist says, Yahweh said to me, you are my son. There's the declaration in Mark 1. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, this is speaking to the other kings of the earth, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is a psalm that you would sing um, uh, at, a, at an anointing ceremony for a new king, and it's It's the claim that our king serves the only true God. 
And that therefore, he stands in a special position over other kings on the earth. Ignore the size of the military. Ignore the size of a treasury. Ignore the size of our empire. He speaks for God. He rules God's people. Other kings be warned and look to him. You are my son, the Lord said to him. Mark 1. You are my beloved son. Now, we could just leave it there, but there's one word there, beloved, um, that I think Mark is pulling from one other story, and that is from Genesis 22, which is, of course, Abraham's instruction to go sacrifice his son, Isaac. Genesis 22 says this, Isaac is born in 21, and then in 22, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, your beloved son, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. Um, the connections between our New Testament and some of these Old Testament texts isn't quite so clear in English. Um, here's the reason why. When Mark writes, he's actually working from Greek Old Testaments. And therefore, he is pulling a lot of similar words and literally using them. Our Old Testament is not translated from Greek any longer. It's translated from Hebrew. Some sections from Aramaic, but it's, it is from Hebrew. Therefore, the wording is slightly different. The meaning is the same. Mark is referencing Genesis 22. Now, why would he, why would he draw a connection to, uh, from God's declaration about Jesus to Isaac. Well, one, of course, a son who will be sacrificed in obedience to God's plan, in absolute trust of him. Okay, that one we can kind of catch. The other one that's a little bit harder to grab, though, is who is Isaac in the story, in Abraham's story? Hmm? His only son. Now you might say, well, he had Ishmael. But this is the son of promise. This is the one when God told Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great man with a great name, with a populous country, and lots of beautiful land. Um, I'm going to use you to bless the world. And Abraham says, that's great. Have you seen my wife? She's really old and barren. And God says, I know I'm going to do this. And Isaac is the son of promise. God, or Abraham doesn't trust um, Abraham and Sarah get together and they hatch a new plan to use Hagar to achieve the son of promise. And God says, no, that's not the way this is going to work. You can have Isaac. Galatians connects this to Jesus very strongly. The Abraham and Isaac connection. But the son of promise tells me a couple of things. is that God is utterly faithful to his covenants. And God will achieve what he wants to through his plan to redeem this world. Remember, we've talked about this before, that God kind of works through different sections of redeeming and restoring the world. He told Adam, you're going to control everything. You're going to, to rule and steward this place, and he couldn't do it. So the first, the first humans fail. He says, okay, well, I'll create a new nation. So he takes Abraham and says, you're going to represent me to the world. You will be unique. You'll be set apart. You'll be holy. And then, of course, they can't quite do that. And then he, and then he takes um, 
Moses and says, we're going to give you guys some law. Can you imagine how long it was before they actually knew who God was in terms of what his character was like? Abraham, 2000 BC. Moses, 1450s. 550 years before they actually knew who God uh, was in terms of explicit instructions. This is how you make me happy. That's why they thought the law was beautiful. What if you were trying to follow a God for hundreds and hundreds of years? I'm off track now, but this is funny. What if you were trying to follow God for hundreds and hundreds of years, and you had no idea what he was like other than that he was powerful and in some way good? And then all of a sudden, your leader, Moses, goes up on a mountain and comes down and says, I got lots of ways to follow him. God told me what he's like, and he told me how to make him happy. We think the law is binding and um, restrictive. The Israelites would have felt so liberated that they finally understood who God was and what he wanted. Um, anyway, back to it. Um, Jesus is taking on the role of Isaac, who stands as the, the, uh, the son of promise through whom all the redemptive plans of God would come. And so we've seen in just one verse... You are my beloved son. Jesus is taking the role of the Davidic king and the son of promise who will be sacrificed. And then, probably the most surprising line to Mark's early audience, God says, and with you I am well pleased. Could just be a, uh, a kind um, word about Jesus. You've done a good job. Or more than likely, it's a reference to Isaiah 42 verse 1 which is um, one of our servant songs, if you remember our study through Isaiah. This is another section where the English wording, um, they don't quite match up, but the, the texts are connected, truly. Isaiah 42 begins with this, Behold my servant, whom I am uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And then this is important, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Remember, the Spirit just descended on Jesus like a dove. Put my Spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus was just declared to be the Davidic king. Behold, my servant, however, is a new idea. Whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, or with whom I am well pleased. Um, this... This would have been shocking because Israel was longing for the Davidic king or Messiah to come. They just didn't really expect him to take on the role of the servant in Isaiah. Because after all, remember, the servant is intended to suffer and die, be crushed for the iniquities of others. So in one declaration, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, they are now trying to grasp what is going on. Or at least Mark's readers. Again, we can't quite catch if everyone heard this. But the king is here, and he's going to suffer. And if we read it, literally he's going to die. This is all new information. Shocking information. But this, verses 9 through 11, 
is the section that really talks about the power of the gospel. Because after all, this is the story of Jesus, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is Mark explaining what the beginning of the gospel looks like. This is concerning the Son from Romans 1. This is all about how powerful Jesus is because God has declared him, like Romans 1 said, to be the Son of God. And everything that that entails, that entails taking the throne and ruling, that entails uh, dying as a sacrifice like Isaac, and that entails suffering like the servant of Isaiah. Now, that's all shocking, but it does tell us one thing that Mark wants his early audience to catch. The Messianic age is here. It's finally happening. It's finally happening. Now, this gospel is also, I'm going to call it, very effective because Jesus is immediately tempted. Um, So my Bible has the baptism of Jesus, then it has another heading, the temptation of Jesus. Um, I I think that that's a bit of a disservice to how Mark wanted these to be read. I think they're the same story. I already mentioned that. He goes right into it. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Sparse, um, but full. So, what, what's this business about 40 days? Is it just descriptive, or is there some um, profundity to it? Does it matter that it was 40 days, or could it have been 39? It matters. Jesus is going to out-Israel Israel. There were 40 years in the wilderness, and they did a horrible job of it. Jesus goes out in the wilderness for 40 days and nails it. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. This is the working of the Spirit. Um, one thing that you can glean. Now, Mark is not, I don't think Mark is offering any of this information as exemplary, as this is therefore what you should do. But we can glean some things from it. And one of the things that I think that we can see, especially with the, the, um, the anointing of the Spirit, and then the Spirit immediately driving him to the temptation, is that um, those baptized with the Spirit ought to expect conflict. I just don't see any way where that doesn't happen. It seems like it's natural and normal for the baptism of the Spirit to, resort, to result in conflict with evil, with the things of this world, with Satan in Jesus' case. And we see here that Jesus entered into a period of testing where his messianic credentials, which were given in verses 9 through 11, are now proven. God says all these things about Jesus. You're the king. You're going to, to give your life as a sacrifice. You're going to fulfill the role of the, the servant from Isaiah. And it's like, okay, well, talk is cheap. Jesus goes into the desert and proves it. Goes into the desert and proves it. Um, the angels and the animals can sometimes trip us up. First on the animals. The animals, I believe, Mark is just giving us that detail to communicate the the desolation of this place, the danger of it. This is a, a place away from where everyone lived, and it is a place where um, utter dependence on the spirit will be necessary. 
Now, the, the angels, um, this is interesting, and, and this is where I'm going to land softly. This is a plank I'm not going to put a lot of weight on. But um, if you go to Psalm 91, there's a really interesting connection. A few interesting words about angels that may or may not connect. Again, I'm not going to land here too hard. He says... What am I looking for here? 11. There we go. This is a psalm about God's protection. Psalm 91 verse 11 says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against, your, against a stone. And then here are the animals. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. And these are dangerous animals, obviously, and in Mark he calls them wild animals. Um, but it says if, if this psalm has anything to do with it, it might be telling us that when he is being tested, that Jesus has not only his anointing from God and the spirit from God, but the sovereign protection of God. Which is complicated because remember, Jesus is God walking around. So this is you have to look at these from multiple perspectives. But um, what what these two sections, the baptism and the temptation, tell us is one um, that Jesus has been empowered and affirmed, empowered by the Spirit and affirmed by the very voice of God, anointed to do what He's been sent to do. And he will do it, apparently, because in the temptation, he is proven. He is proven. Now, the complicated thing about passages like these is I look at them and I think, okay, so like, how does this apply to us? So many times I just draw blanks on some of these sections. Application in this, I mean, I could make some stuff up, but... To be faithful to the text, I don't know if Mark is trying to get us to read this and therefore go and do. I don't think that I, I I can't find anywhere in this text that Mark is trying to get us to do that. But there are some things that I think we can um, lay alongside of it and say this section, the baptism and the temptation, support these ideas. But these this is not what this section is calling us to do. So I want to be very careful that I'm not saying therefore in light of this go and do whatever. It's, I see these themes, and I'm going to um, lay them alongside of it, and we'll see what happens. Um, the first thing that I came to is that Jesus uh, is anointed with the Spirit and driven by the Spirit, and, and in many ways protected by the Spirit. Um, the very same Spirit that we have. And Jesus, if you go back to Isaiah 11, with those verses, it's, it's the Spirit that He is going to rely on in a complete way, a total way. And I wonder if there's not something there for us to learn about um, relying on the Spirit. I wonder how often I actually do rely on the Spirit. I'm not in danger of like losing everything financially. My family's healthy. I only have one kid that's trying to kill me right now. <laughs> She's mean. Um... But like by and large, I, I, I have to I come to the question all the time. What am I relying on the Spirit for? 
the list is usually quite short. If, especially if I'm not in some stressful situation, the list is often quite short. Um, you'll be shocked that I want to go read something in John. John 14. Jesus says this. And these are convicting passages for someone who struggles to find opportunities to rely on the Spirit. But here's what it says in John 14, verse 12. Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is getting into the end of John's Gospel, and he's starting to close ranks and start to have more and more private conversations with his closest followers. He says this in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Um, and then you can read the rest of that. Whatever you're asking my name, I'll do. But I want to, I want to emphasize that Jesus says, I'm about to leave. But you're going to have certain advantages. You'll be able to do what I've done because you have the same spirit, which he'll say later. And he says, it's better for me to go. And I wonder how often I live as though that's true. He says, if you just turn the next page in John 15, this is, this is a, one of the most swirling um, instruction, set of instructions that Jesus gives, but I'll just read the first few lines of it. John 15 starts out like this. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. And here it is. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, Jesus is speaking about himself. But in application, once he's gone, this is going to take place in the Spirit. Um, Mark's introductory section, I think, is helping us see that the Messianic age is here, and therefore we should expect to live life in total dependence on the Spirit, expect to in some way do greater things than Jesus, expect to abide in Him by the power of the Spirit. And oftentimes I'm at a loss for how that plays out. Um, but there, is, there are hopeful passages along those lines. This will be the last one I read. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 is the famous passage about the Valley of Dry Bones. Now, Ezekiel's book is full of visions. Uh, I was talking with Morgan just a little bit ago, actually, about her um, doing some stuff on the new temple that's actually coming up in the 40s of Ezekiel. Um, but, you know, have to qualify that. This is him seeing a vision of something coming. Um, if you like crazy sci-fi movies, Ezekiel is your book. It is wild. Um, this, Ezekiel 37 is a fascinating chapter. And I'm just going to read a, a few short sections from it. This is what Ezekiel says. Uh, just for context, this book takes place when, um, not that long after Isaiah, really. 
Um, it, I mean, Ezekiel lived part of his life in the exile himself. So he experienced the pain of separation from God and separation from the land and punishment as a result of their sin. But this is what it says in 37. Oh, the hand of Yahweh was upon me, Ezekiel said, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of dry bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Um, that is just a picture of complete death. Skeletons everywhere. Dry as can be. Valley full death and God said to Ezekiel son of man can these bones live and I answered oh, oh Lord God you know and then he said to me prophesy over these bones and say to them oh dry bones hear the word of the Lord thus says the Lord God to these bones behold I will cause breath to enter you um, I'll pause there briefly to mention breath and spirit are the same Hebrew word ruach it is the same word. I will cause breath to enter you. Same breath that was breathed into Adam. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you. You shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and you shall and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And then there's this crazy scene where he does it, and it happens. Ezekiel prophesies, and it takes place. And then I want to draw your attention to the very end of this section. Verse 13, And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the graves. Oh, my people. Sounds an awful lot like a resurrection to me. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord, puts his promise on it. This speaking to a day when things will be set right, when new life will come from dead things, when the Spirit will come upon us, and where resurrection from both spiritual and, I believe, physical death um, take place. And so this is what, like, the fact that that's about to soon happen, Mark is signaling that Messianic age is here. And remember Romans 1, the, as Paul connects the Spirit to the resurrection. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul helps us un uncover all the subtleties of Mark 1 and say, yep, Isaiah 11 is taking place. The servant from Isaiah 42 is here. The, son, the promised son from Genesis 22 is now here. The Davidic king from 2 Samuel 7 from Psalm 2, they're here. And the spirit that breathes life into dead things from Ezekiel 37, it's all here. And so if nothing else in terms of application, I look at this and I say, I can take great comfort in these truths and also recognize probably my need to find ways to depend on the Spirit in greater ways. I just think that like the 
Jesus going down there didn't need to be washed from uncleanness. He didn't need to be washed from sin. And the humility of that act that the Son of that both divine and human Son of God is baptized, just the humility and his identification with the kingdom of God in that movement. It's so complete in this passage that he would go to be washed from sin, washed from uncleanness, which he didn't have, and just his willingness to model what it means to be the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And along those lines, if you want to come to passages that don't have any clear application, the one thing you can always find is the character of God himself, which is ours to model. So Jesus comes in a way that pushes back the kingdom of darkness. Buckle up. That's your job too. If he serves, it's your job too. If he sacrifices, that's on us. In Jesus, it's all bigger and more profound and more costly and more meaningful. But for us, it's still our call. The one with the Spirit of God in Isaiah 11, the whole back half of that chapter is about that he would live in righteousness. That's, that's our call too. And so, when you, see, when you see stories about Jesus that don't tell us to do anything, just try to figure out what Jesus is like. And follow that. So, any other thoughts or questions? Complaints? If you have complaints, submit them to Alyssa. And she will not give them to me. (laughs) Okay, let me pray. And uh, fifth Sunday, by the way. So that means Jim's preaching right off the bat. So if you want to linger in the lobby, that's fine. It's your choice. You'll just be awkwardly walking in while everyone's sitting. So this Sunday. And then sit by people you want to take communion with. Because it's the big go down and take it. Okay, let me pray. God, we are, as always, grateful for, I'm grateful for Jesus, for your gospel, and for the redemption that comes as a result. Help us to um, find ways to trust you more, to live in the power of the Spirit and to trust our own wit and wisdom less. I don't even have a problem asking you to put us in positions where we have to depend on you more. Uncomfortable though they may be, but I wouldn't trade anything for a greater sense of your presence and your work in our lives. Help us to know you better through your scriptures through our prayers, through the Spirit working in us and in others. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.